Hi, this is Ben Kaspit from Tel Aviv with a brand new episode of Own Israel. Israel prides itself on being the only democracy in the Middle East. The Jewish state came by this title honestly, but more and more people are asking whether it's still valid. Benjamin Netanyahu's prolonged rule, the continued bashing of the legal system, of law enforcement authorities, of the state prosecution, of the attorney general, of the courts by Netanyahu and his people have all come together in the black clouds now overshadowing Israel's democracy. Reality, as reflected in the daily routine of Israel's political and constitutional systems, is not encouraging. For almost 18 months, Israel did not have an elected government. The constitutional political upheaval led to three elections, one after the other, and a fourth may now be in the offing. The legislative branch, the Knesset, was almost paralyzed by a series of government-sponsored amendments to the law and other measures designed to curb its power. The Knesset's government oversight functions were trashed. Politicians were demanding that the bureaucrats be silenced, the gatekeepers distanced, and the regulators castrated. Prime Minister Netanyahu, who spent most of his political career defending these hallmarks of democracy, is now leading the charge against them in a desperate attempt to evade the long arm of the law. His trial on charges of bribery, fraud, and breach of trust is already underway in Jerusalem, and his clear interest lies in discrediting the system that led him there. And now the corona crisis is giving rise to legislative initiatives that also call into question Israel's democratic principles. For example, a bill allowing the Shin Bet Security Agency to track Israelis exposed to the coronavirus has generated sharp criticism. The government is using the Shin Bet's special capabilities against its own citizens to limit the spread of infections. Human rights organizations are arguing that such a measure is unnecessary, inefficient, and undemocratic. Last week, the Knesset approved what critics are calling the big corona law, which greatly limits its own oversight of the executive branch in dealing with the epidemic. The law gives Netanyahu and his alternate Prime Minister Benny Gantz almost unlimited power to impose closures and sanctions. This has also prompted broad criticism. Critics of these measures argue that democracies die slowly in the dark. They also warn against the slippery slope of such moves and against the well-known frog phenomenon. By the time the frog realizes it is being cooked alive, it's already cooked alive. Israel is being swept by a growing wave of protests. Some of them stem from a general unease about the democracy under siege. The guest with whom we will discuss this today is one of the leading representatives of Israeli civil society. Professor Karin Nahon is an associate professor of information science in the Lauder School of Government and Offer School of Communications at the Interdisciplinary Center at Herzliya, IDC, in Israel. The elected president of the Israel Internet Association, chairwoman of the National Committee of Ethics, Regulations, and Artificial Intelligence, and an affiliated associate professor in the Information School at University of Washington. 
She is the author of the award-winning book Going Viral 2013 and was named on the markers list of 10 most influential people in Israel and on Forbes list of 50 most influential women in Israel. Professor Nahon will be with us right after this short break for commercials. Stay with us. If you're listening to this podcast, you obviously care about the Middle East. And if you do, you should probably be reading El Monitor. El Monitor is a global newsroom headquartered in Washington, D.C., with a network of over 160 contributors around the world. El Monitor offers first-class reporting and analysis from a range of perspectives and an approach that represents the highest journalistic standards, as well as an award-winning commitment to press freedom and independence. If you haven't done so already, visit us at elmonitor.com, check out our articles, and sign up for our free newsletters. There's a lot to choose from, including the Week in Review, an essay that offers unusual insights and forecasts into the region based upon El Monitor's outstanding reporting. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe to our El Monitor podcast on your favorite podcast platform, on Israel with Ben Caspit and on the Middle East with me, Andrew Parasoliti. Thank you for staying with us as we welcome Professor Karina Hohn. Thank you for joining Al Monitor's own Israel podcast, Professor Nahon. Shalom. Shalom. Let's start with a broad question. Do you think the feeling that many Israelis have that their democracy is under threat is justified? And if so, what indications point to that conclusion? Uh, yeah, I do think that the Israelis' uh, kind of estimation and feeling that the democracy is under threat uh, has something behind it. I wouldn't say that, that democracy has fallen, like some of my colleagues do say so, but I do, I do think that we are in a very sensitive uh, position and situation regarding our democratic kind of structure. And we're talking about hurting the gatekeepers. I think uh, you will mention that, but hurting the, the mass media, hurting the general attorney. Um, attacking different types of enforcement authorities, interrogation authorities, uh, you know, uh, judicial enforcement uh, kind of authorities. All of these indications mean that something is going on. And, and you know, democracy is a very, I would say, um, fragile structure of government. And it's very easy to see it fall apart very quickly from one point that you see that, that things are shaking and the checks and balances are not working as usual. Because... I, what I think, and I, I'd like to, to, to hear uh, your uh, thoughts about it, is the, the immune system of the Israeli democracy is not so strong as we thought. Because many of the things that you just mentioned happened, and actually no one, no one cared. They, uh, talking about the mass media, talking about smearing the attorney general, the police, the prosec prosecutors. We, had a, we have a prime minister that, that said on camera in his speech, why don't you investigate the investigators? Such a things, and you, you can see it all over the streets, that, that bother me and, and maybe tells me that, that something, is, uh, something is sick here. Sick is a, is a too big kind of word for me, but I, I do think there's a problem. And, and we can see it by the, by the positioning of the Knesset in front of the government. You know, the Knesset has been weakening for a long time. 
um, you know, in proportions next to the government. And the, the main idea that we see here is that that the government cannot operate as usual as it should. Uh, people think about the Knesset as kind of an institution that is supposed to legislate, but this is not true. This is not its own kind, the only uh, you know, role that the Knesset has. The Knesset is very important in its oversight role. Um, you know, the questions regarding the committees, the idea of the what we call in Hebrew, the hot dog factory, the idea that the legislation enters into the committees at one point, it gets out in another point very different. And that means that people People ask questions, the member of the Knesset asks questions. All those oversight kind of tools are so important. And I think what you feel is that now with the corona situation, that all the little oversight tools that we do have that are very weak anyway, uh, have been weakening more and more. And this is tr a trouble. This is, this is a challenge. This is something that we need to take care of. So it's definitely something that, that I kind of like uh, think that it's 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 something that that is a problem that we need to take care of. You know, if if I'm thinking aloud, when I was a child or or, or younger, young politicians dreamed of becoming an Israeli lawmaker. <clears throat> becoming a member of the Knesset was their their lifelong goal, and ultra. You know, it was it was big. Now, when you see the, this Knesset, the current, the serving Knesset members, we've just formed a government that, that occupies 36 ministers out of the 120 Knesset members, and then 18 or, or 16 vice ministers, undersecretaries, like, like we say it in, in, in English. And you know, in order to be an ordinary member of the Knesset, it's, it's almost a curse. It's almost a humiliation. People, after one, one term in the Knesset, they demand being a minister or at least a, an under chairman of a speaker of the Knesset. Something happened here, not, not so quickly, like you said. I think it's a process that the, the, our, our, our legislative became something that we don't appreciate anymore. We don't appreciate and it's a big mistake. Because eventually, and you saw it in the corona crisis, eventually when the Knesset was doing things, when eventually they were asking questions, when they were asking for data, eventually things happened. You know, the process of supervision and control is so important in the Knesset, and not only the legislation, because again, in the legislation, you need to have a vote. You have to, you have, to have a majority, and the majority is already set. But you touched upon a very interesting thing. I think it's not appropriate to have 36 ministers and 16 vice ministers. Definitely in, in a situation that we are like now, where people don't have basically uh, you know, money to eat or to feed their children. So, so I think it's a big mistake. And eventually we have to remember that governments are here to serve us and not vice versa. And it has a kind of a connotation in the last few kind of uh, you know, speeches that I hear of different ministers that we are here to help them and not vice versa. Uh, but definitely, you know, being a member of the Knesset is not the highlight today. And I think it's a big mistake because you can do a lot of things through the Knesset. I think what we just said is, is, is that the very cause that maybe igniting the mass protests that we see now in the streets, and maybe we will touch it later, people feel that their, their leaders are not there for them, 
but the leaders expect them to, to, to support the leaders. But as I said, maybe we'll touch it later. I want to, to go into details uh, with you, Professor Nahon. Some people claim that the government is taking advantage of the corona crisis to expand its powers at the expense of the Knesset, of the judiciary, of civil liberties, of the right to privacy. First, what do you think about, uh, what do you think is the problem of using the Shin Bet's monitoring tools to fight the epidemic? We're talking about our huge, very sophisticated, famous Shin Bet, that it, its goal is to stop and halt terror, and now we are using it uh, to, to control the spread of the virus. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's for saving life. So, so I'll separate the, the answer into two. The first one is the way the process of decision-making of, of taking the sheen bet and making it the, the, the big institution that basically uh, locates uh, corona, uh, I would say, contract tracing. Uh, the process itself was not accountable. It was not transparent. Uh, just to remind you, it started with different uh, kind of emergency orders that came and the Knesset did not have any say in it. Uh, so in a way, the Israeli public has, in one day, noticed that the Shin Bet is supposed to basically survey the people. Uh, now, in terms of technological you know, efficiency, it might be right, but let's put it in aside for a second because, because there are problems there as well. But let's talk about the main idea, the main problem, and you touched upon it. The main challenge of having a sheen bed, a secret service, using it for civilian purposes by itself in a democracy is a problematic thing. I mean, there is no other country, democratic country, that is using its secret service in order to basically try to track people who are in contact of corona uh, patients. This is, it doesn't happen. You have other type of tools. That's the first thing. Second thing, I don't know if you noticed, and probably you did, since we started this debate, because it's a civilian debate, you can't hide, you know, the technological features of the Shin Bet. And suddenly you have uh, uh, huge institutions that usually is, you know, in Calvin's time, and suddenly people are starting to debate about its uh, technological features, characteristic, whether what's the false positive, what's the false negative, let's, uh, this is, doesn't work well, this works well. And suddenly the Shin Bet, who's definitely not used to it, and, and its main purpose is to tackle and, and you know, get terrorists wherever they are, suddenly needs to deal with Israeli civilians. It doesn't make sense. And in fact, it jeopardizes its own kind of, you know, core activity, which is very worrying by itself. And by now, the, let's get to the... By the way, yeah. I, I wanted to go on, but even the head of the Shin Bet, Nadav Argaman, was not very enthusiastic, and I'm, now I'm, it's, an, it's another statement, uh, handling or, 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 or using this very important tool that was supposed to be secret. Uh, yes. in, a civil, in a civil event like, like a pandemic. I can tell you historically that heads of Shin Bet have been uh, in that situation of using the Shin Bet tools to other civilian uh, kind of purposes, and they rejected that. And I know at least of four different requests that were done by the government of Israel for the Shin Bet to use it, and they refused it. And, and I think this is why the Nadav Al-Gaman, the head of the Shin Bet, was very reluctant to do it. And, but, but the main thing is that they didn't even try a civilian alternative. 
so that you can't really say this is a tool that works and, and you're not trying anything else instead. And the big thing is the false positive. In two weeks, we had 150,000 people isolated. This means 150,000 people who don't bring money home. And, you know, in the corona situation where you have two weeks, anyway, we were in closure for so long and we didn't work. A lot of the people, in the, you know, in the market did not work. And suddenly you are isolated for two weeks. This is something that somebody needs to, you know, to make the trade off or at least understand the pros and cons. Because uh, we can't bring Israel to a situation where people would not have uh, the ability to survive economically. And that's the price. It's a big price. Because you're the, you're the, the expert in this uh, issue, what do you think is the reason that Israel, such a sophisticated state, would just launch another uh, missile to the space uh, <laughs> with a satellite, cannot develop, could, could not develop a, a civilian tool to, to replace the Shin Bet's abilities or capabilities to, to have this uh, tracking of coronavirus patients? I think partly is because the Shin Bet tool was there. You see countries that did not have the Shin Bet or did not think about using their secret service, uh, you know, to track their citizens had to develop a tool like that. And in our case, we had a very easy tool. It was there. Let's do it. Let's use the Shin Bet and track hundreds of thousands of people. By the way, I know at least of 100 cases that came into my attention of people, and I'm talking about people like psychiatrists, like doctors, who are putting their phone at home and not taking their phone because they don't want to be located and scanned by the shin bed. So in a way, we are, you know, people are starting to circumvent even the shin bed tool. So what are we doing if we are losing the trust of the, of the people? And we, don't forget, trust is the main tool to fight the corona. If we are losing that, then, then, then really we have to rethink using the Shinbet tool. Yes, I have friends that live in Europe and got uh, an, an SMS from the Shinbet. Uh, <laughs> you have to stay in quarantine now because you are exposed. Let's talk about the big corona bill passed by the Knesset last week. Actually, this bill now enables the government to act freely without the Knesset... Uh, uh, regulating its actions because of the coronavirus, uh, the pandemic situation. Do you think it's a slippery slope or just as Prime yeah. Minister says, uh, give us the tools to, to, to act fast now. When we will be over the crisis, everything will, will come back to its place safely. It's very worrying. In fact, you talked about the slippery slope of the democracy. This is the slippery slope of the democracy. Because, you know, when I hear the Prime Minister saying, oh, uh, we have a challenge, we have a blockage because the Knesset is in between. Hey, the Knesset is in between because this is democracy. That's the idea. The idea is that you do have a separation between the branches. The idea is that you do have an oversight, that you can't legislate if you are the executive branch, but the Knesset legislates. And, and suddenly I understand that you have to make things faster, but still you have to have a decision-making process that is accountable to people. Again, we return to the trust level. If people won't trust you because you're not accountable, you're not transparent, then, then what are we doing? Why are we doing that? All the decisions in the government are not transparent. Uh, you know, Globes have been trying to get the, you know, the agreements and the discussions about in the government about different closures, about the decision to close uh, businesses, for example, to close, you know, country clubs and to close, you know, uh, cinemas. They couldn't. If that would have been happening in the Knesset, in the parliament, that would have been a different story. 
Look at what happened in the Corona Committee when the head of the Corona Committee was asking for data. So simple, nothing more than data. And eventually she had she was basically threatened by the head of the coalition not to continue her job as a, as a kind of a supervision, which is her main job. This is why she's getting money eventually in salary. So, so this is definitely this, a this bill makes the Corona Committee uh, empty. Now, now we don't yeah. need the Corona Committee. And we had a, a whole week of, of discussions in the Corona Committee when we actually realized that the Ministry of Health or anybody else in the government doesn't have data that is so crucial in order to, 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 to uh, decide whether to open the swimming pools or close them, open the beaches or close them. We just don't have data and now they will be able to make the decisions without any data and we will not be able to know it. As one of the ministers says, don't be a child. You don't want data. You don't need data. I'm, I'm joking, of course. To have data. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Exactly. And yes, uh, part of the Corona bill has been basically taking the powers of the Corona committee. And we have to, just to remind you, the Corona committee was created by the coalition agreement. The idea was that there would be one committee that was focused on specifically on the Corona and everybody would have the expertise because it's the same people who are dealing with different, very similar kind of, you know, uh, challenges and assignments, and now it's all going to be dispersed in between the different committees. Everybody will have to start everything from the beginning, but the big thing of the bill of the corona is that the oversight is only after it's being legislated by the government. Suddenly the government is the legislator, and this is a very unhealthy situation, especially in the, in the kind of, I would say, flux and in the kind of sensibility that Israel is there constitutionally. I want to, uh, to finalize the, the, this very interesting uh, conversation in some macro or general issues. You know, I, I remember a story when the late Minister of Communications, Fuad Ben Eliezer, many years ago when the internet was in the beginning of the internet, someone told him, listen, it was in the internet or on the internet. So he, he got angry, yelled at him and uh, get me the, <laughs> the general manager of the internet immediately by, by phone. Now in Israel, I think we elected you as the Prime Minister of the Internet. You are the, the, the most uh, uh, known and popular expert on this, in this issue. And I, I want to ask you the following. We live in a populist age. The Internet has made information accessible, fast, and not always accurate. How do you think this affects politicians, their work, their commitment to the mission, their life, our life? Yeah. So, so it's not only in Israel, we see it very strongly in, in different kind of democracies. We see it, for example, in Brazil, the United States, uh, in Hungary, in Israel as well. Uh, we see personal politics. That means that if we used to have in the 70s and 80s, you know, the parties, the parties were the main intermediate between the public and the elected officials and the elected, you know, uh, our representatives. We, you, don't, you don't know really who's the list and who's the party. You see only the head of the parties. And well, that's what I mean by, by personal politics. And we have a lot of populism. You mentioned populism. A lot of people don't understand what it means. But when we say populism, we, we are talking about the idea that the main leader is talking about us versus them, right? We are against uh, the, the elites or the elites. The elites are journalists like you. The elites are 
professors like me, the elites are elected, you know, sorry, not elected, professionals that are the bureaucrats, that are, some people are calling them the deep states, and, and they are the traitors. That's part of the message of the populist leader. And now we have in the age of the internet, another step. It's not only that they are the traitors, it's not only us versus them, but it's me who represents you, the people. So, so if somebody hurts me, they're actually hurting the people. And that's another step of the populist leader. And, and it's very interesting because social networks is a wonderful thing, but, but you know, I mean, it gives you also a distortion of what's really going on. And, and smart populist leaders know to make the illusion as if a lot of people are behind them, as if actually certain types of groups in the population are bad to the will of the people. Of course, I'm saying that as, as something that, that shouldn't happen, but, but that's what's happening with populist leaders. And, and social networks are part of, you know, of the rise of, of, I would say, personal politics. And of course, of fake news and alternative facts, et cetera, yes. et cetera. And what do you yeah, think? Yeah, people of... don't care about facts anymore, you know? Yeah. By the way, the corona has changed that. With the corona, suddenly people are looking for the doctors. Suddenly they are looking for the researchers. Give us data, give us data. And, and, and this is where the leaders suddenly are in a situation where they, 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 are, they, you know, they can't send the regular message no, of, I, we'll I, make it work. I didn't think about it. This is a very interesting point. It brings me hope back. And I want to ask you, if I, someone will ask you 20 years from now, in a retrospective, all these social networks, internet, Facebook, Twitter, you name it, is it the benefits are, are, are bigger than the burden or the price we pay? Or wow, it's a, it's a big question. It's a very difficult one. You know, it's a very difficult one because the space of the internet is where the political space is. This is the Hyde Park of today. And of course, people who know how to exploit the space would use it better. Uh, the question is, can we build tools to basically minimize the distortions of power interests or at least to see them? You know, And this is the big question because no doubt that the fake news, that the fact that the internet is polarized, uh, the fact that, that you have so much, you know, toxicity and, and tension on internet um, has created a lot of challenges to democracy. But eventually, you know, it, it's a space. It's a space and we have to learn how to deal with it, not to close it, of course. And finally, do you think that it moves or decisions like the, the decision that, that, that Twitter got the... Uh, a few days or weeks ago uh, to correct uh, false uh, tweets or news or only mention, listen, if you want the real data, it's here. Do you think it's, it's, a, it's a useful or a justified? Well, it depends. It, it depends because Twitter and Facebook has different kind of, I would say, uh, guidelines. Uh, but if you see, by the way, Facebook has been, and, I mean, Zuckerberg has been saying, I'm, I don't want to be the arbitrator of truth. He's been the arbitrator of truth for a long time. The fact that they decide what will be said or not said for regular people, not for leaders, for you and me, uh, that means that they are the arbitrator of truth. By the way, until the corona, they've been very careful not to intervene. I think the corona has changed a little bit of it because of the, fa of the fake news, because of the fact that that was something that they wanted to stop in order to save lives. Uh, still, I think the situation is where we have this year in the United States, uh, you know, election, 
And for the first time, we see the big platforms that they understand that their platforms are being used and exploit, uh, you know, to to kind of like do harm or to use it and exploit it for for bad purposes. And they understand that they need to somehow be there. Now, if you notice, they didn't. Say, I mean, Twitter, for example, they said. This is the the tr this is the, the the information that we know about a certain kind of situation. So so when the president says something, when the United States president says something, and maybe it's false, then the minimum that they can do is you know send people to see other information. It doesn't mean that it will help, but still you have to remember they didn't delete the information. You can still get to it if you click on it. So they're very careful in not deleting, uh, you know, people who lie, definitely leaders who lie. And if you ask me, I think it's it's the right thing not to not to delete it. But we have to understand that platforms are very strong player here. It's a step in the right uh, direction. Professor Karina Ohn, thank you very much for this interesting conversation. And we will be back with some final insights right after a short commercial break. Thank you, Shalom. Thank you. If you're listening to this podcast, you obviously care about the Middle East, and if you do, you should probably be reading El Monitor. El Monitor is a global newsroom headquartered in Washington, D.C., with a network of over 160 contributors around the world. El Monitor offers first-class reporting and analysis from a range of perspectives and an approach that represents the highest journalistic standards, as well as an award-winning commitment to press freedom and independence. If you haven't done so already, visit us at almonitor.com, check out our articles, and sign up for our free newsletters. There's a lot to choose from, including the Week in Review, an essay that offers unusual insights and forecasts into the region based upon Almonitor's outstanding reporting. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe to our Almonitor podcast on your favorite podcast platform, on Israel with Ben Caspit, and on the Middle East with me. Andrew Parasoliti. Thank you for staying with us. According to Professor Karina Hon, the Israeli democracy is not dying yet, but there are too many reasons to worry about its stability and future. The combination of mounting political pressure on the gatekeepers, the use of Shin Bet strategic tools to follow Israeli citizens, and the general feeling of emergency, which is a byproduct of the corona crisis, are pushing the fragile Israeli democracy to the wall. The big corona act that enables the government to make crucial decisions without significant supervision from the Knesset is one more red warning light in a series of such warnings that were seen in Israel lately. It is too early to eulogize Israel democracy, but I think it's never too late to start worrying about it. Thank you for listening. See you here next Monday in On Israel in Al Monitor. Take care.